0: Welcome to Consultancy Insights. My name is Phil Mowat and this is
1: Ed Pennell. So
0: 2020 has been a pretty awful year for everybody. Um, Lots of people have lost their jobs, redundancy, business failures, things like that. Um, You used to be in recruitment, didn't you? So as a former recruiter, what are the options people have got for their next steps?
1: Well I think there's a few different options but uh, I want to start by just saying I actually joined the recruitment industry in 2008 when the big recession hit and um, what I found was there was a lot of people on the job market throwing their CVs at almost every single job out there and uh, as a recruiter in that market it was really difficult to actually pick out the good CVs from the others when you had so many coming through in your inbox at one time. Um, I was also involved in the oil and gas industry crash, I was a recruiter during that time and uh, there were companies in Aberdeen and Norway and London uh, making thousands of people redundant al- almost on a weekly basis. And um, it's really tough to see so many people fighting for the same job. But um, th- the reason I mention it is because uh, I-, I remember coming in in the mornings and having 400 applications for one job <laughs> that had advertised in Saudi Arabia from all around the world. So uh, it right now, we're probably gonna see the same kind of thing happening again, you know, 2021 after furloughs end, there's gonna be a lot of redundancies and I think people really need to think now about what options they have. And um, in my opinion, there's there's three main options ultimately. Try and find another job, which as I've said already is pretty tough. Start their own business or go through franchising. Now, the first topic, finding a, a job, as I said, r- really tough and actually There's so much technology out there now that are helping people to uh, stand out more from the crowd. Things like video that can be utilised.
0: So I was going to ask, what what's the funniest thing you've ever seen on the CV? Wow, Um, I mean, apart from some
1: crazy headshots with people with their jacket over their shoulder, um, I've seen some people just saying, "I'm looking for a job. Can you help?" And uh, you know,
0: (laughs) but they but they stood out, didn't? Do you think any of those actually got a job in the end, or? Probably not.
1: <laughs> Probably not at that time. The, the best type of CV that I've seen is one that's really clear and easy for a recruiter to get through. Mm. Um, it takes seven seconds on average for a recruiter to review a CV and decide whether they want to continue reading it, let alone speak to that person. Um, and, and some ideas to ke- get a really clean CV is make sure that your job titles are in bold, stand out and are very obvious and are very relevant to the job that you're applying for. The next is bullet points. Lots of people have bullet points on their CV, but actually they just have the same for every application they make. They don't tailor the the bullet points Mm. and put them in order of the importance of the role that they're applying for. Mm. So let's say it's a a, a project manager role. Make sure that your most relevant bullet points for that project manager role, like manage teams of XYZ for a particular project, are at the top Mm. and
0: not hidden somewhere in a bulk of text. Yeah, that's really good advice because it's so easy nowadays on those job sites just to press send, isn't it? CV, upload, send, CV, upload, send, but actually making sure that your CV is, is adapted and suitable for the job that you're applying for shows that you're taking some care and attention. But you can see why people get despondent because employers, unfortunately, they don't reply to people, do they? So um, you can see why people take the shortcuts, but it's so important not to take the shortcuts.
1: But it's is, is the amount of time a recruiter has, they can't always get back to every single person. Mm. Um, but you, you, you raised the point there that people are applying to jobs and they don't know what's the other side of it necessarily. And a lot of the time, it's actually applicant tracking systems that look for keywords, basically. Mm. So this is another important thing to consider when looking at a CV is, make sure that you've got the keywords to the role that you're applying for. Um, I'm actually a big believer in personalization and, and tailoring to the scenario so my advice would be that anybody who's looking to apply to a job whether it's in a consultancy or, or anywhere else um, actually read the job description and tailor your cv mm. to that application make sure that your uh, paragraph that describes who you are and uh, you know what you're all about and what you can bring to the company and bring to the role make sure you tailor that to the mm. the application mm. as well as the covering letter as well mm. uh, all too often i would see people just copy and paste you know yeah, just yeah. putting the same cv out to every every role and it it's, just doesn't doesn't work doesn't help you stand same, out
0: same as business though really isn't it because as a business you look at, you look to find what your target market is you find out what their interests are and what they're all about and then you tell you change your message based on that target market so as a potential employee approaching an employer you need to you need to adapt and change yourself in order to, to suit that, that person or that company.
1: Yeah, it's true, and actually it's probably a good way to think about your, your a job application or whatever it is you're doing. It's, right, this is now my full time job. Mm. This yeah. is what I'm going to do, so plan out your day. Who are you gonna contact? What are you gonna do? And um, yeah, take it okay. step by step and case by case. But um, I think what a lot of people fall into is is actually, well, let's just find a temporary job until I find something else. Mm and then feel like and they're a and consultant. That temporary
0: job becomes like four years later.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's not necessarily what they want to do or um, what they set out to do in the first place, but, you know, it's money at the end of the day. And mm. and then I think some people feel that they're now consultants because they've got a six-month contract here and there. Mm. And um, that, that leads me on to kind of the, the, the a point I wanted to ask you really is, what are the options when they're starting out to st- or, or trying to set up their own business? You know, if, somebody's out there looking for jobs finding it really difficult what's the other option Mm. is starting a business so how can they do this well specifically
0: about consultants we all know there's hundreds of thousands of consultants out there aren't there in every field possible so it's not as though you're going to have something unique about you maybe maybe you are the only person in the world that does what you do but the chances are there probably are other people
1: uh, let's take the oil and gas industry that I spoke about a moment ago. In 2014, there were people that were designing pipes or consulting on how a pipeline should be installed across uh, you know, countries. Mm. Once that market's gone, what can they do with their skill set? They're going to have to do something else. They can't find another job designing pipes or consulting on pipelines if those roles aren't available. So they're going to have to start their own
0: business. Mm. Well, I think, I think reputation is so important, isn't it? And recommendations and doing good work for the people that you're currently working with and getting that reputation for yourself and getting people talking about what you do. So when your contract does end and you're looking for the next thing, you've got options because people talk to people. At the end of the day, we all know how LinkedIn works. LinkedIn is the biggest network of business people in the world and people refer people in and recommend people in. So I think it's really important that you do a great job and you make yourself known amongst the people that need to be known, and, um, and then you can create more work for yourself. So <coughs>
1: making the transition into self-employment then, so uh, let's say somebody wants to go into consultancy, mm. what's gonna be their number one challenge when they've, they've gone from that employment world into consult or planning to go into consultancy?
0: So I think, I think the number one challenge for anyone that has come from employed to self-employed or running their own business is that transition of not having that stable paycheck at the end of every month for however many years you've been employed you know on the last day of the month you get x and it comes into your bank account and you get your pay slip a lot of it goes straight back out again on the mortgage and bills and things like that but you know it's there it's guaranteed so i think my conversations that i have with people that are moving into or looking at moving into consultancy or self-employment is that concern around. Oh God, where's my where's my next paycheck going to come? So they need to build confidence in themselves. They need to build confidence in what they do and how they do it and who they know, um, in order to really have have enough energy and passion in order to pursue what they want to pursue.
1: What do you think about that financial challenge though? Because. Whether whether it's a redundancy or threat of redundancy or just a change in someone's life, that financial challenge going from that regular paycheck into, okay, there's nothing coming in for the next X number of months until I do something. How can how can people prepare for that moment?
0: I think I think they need to look at it in a very business like sort of way. So if you are going to open a business, if you were opening a restaurant, you would have to uh, put a lease down or put a deposit down for your lease fit the place out with dec- tables and chairs and pay the chefs and, and you'd have initial costs. So even if you're going into a consultancy role by yourself, you need to ca- plan your cash flow. So you may not m- may not make any money for the first three months, but what you need to do is make sh- sure that you're sufficiently funded, maybe through a business loan or a startup grant or something like that, or an overdraft facility, in order to know that the first three months are going to be hard but once I build up that work and that, that bank of people that I can approach for work, then it is going to happen over time. Um, so if you've got the plan to go, right, I want to be earning X in two years' time, as long as you stick to the plan and you take the actions involved in that plan, then you need to back yourself and you need to go for it.
1: So what do you think are the typical costs for the first year? You know, If you break it down bit by bit, what, what are the main costs?
0: I think it's very tempting when you start your own business to to get a nice office and to buy some nice pens and stationery but actually you need to keep the cost right down so if you can work from home or if you can work from a co-working space that's got a great deal on um, or if you can work even from a Costa coffee if you had to it's not very professional but um, keep the cost down as much as possible in those early stages once you've built up some confidence and you can see that it's going somewhere then yeah you can maybe move into looking at, at buying more things and paying out more things, but take it one step at a time would be my advice.
1: So no buying a Porsche from day one then, no? <laughs> <laughs> so Maybe a miniature Porsche. <laughs> Maybe a miniature Porsche, yeah. It's, it's something it's to aim for. The but dream. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I think um, it's things like make sure you've got a decent laptop that's relevant for the work that you're doing. Um, make sure you've got a mobile phone with a, a contract that's going to not be too costly if you're making 10, 20, 30 calls a day, that kind of thing. But... Um, in terms of preparing for those costs and preparing for those first three months, I think it's really important to, to save, isn't it? And, and think, actually, I need this bank of money behind me to, yeah. to, to get myself ready for this. Yeah. Um, and, and
0: combine that with your own personal expenses. So if you know you spend £1,000 a month on your mortgage, obviously you need £1,000 a month for your mortgage. So make sure you've got that, that funding available so, so you're not putting yourself under too much pressure.
1: Yeah, and travel, I guess, as well. If you're going to go out and about to see clients, maybe it's a trip into London every week. Mm. You know, h- how much is that going to cost for somebody on the outskirts? Yeah. I, I, I know from where I live, it's about seven thousand pounds. So that has to go down as a, a business expense mm. that you need to factor in, I guess. Yeah. But um, there's something else I wanted to ask about as well, because that transition into, you know, the unknown, I guess, <laughs> for for consultants or whoever it may be. Um, I think you have to consider your family as well and make sure they're all on board and your support network, your friends and family. So um, ha- have you experienced anybody who's not done that and, and, and found difficulties?
0: Or um, Well, in my role, I've, I've actually been in the franchising industry for a few years. So we speak to people and we'd ask them a question. So what does your partner think? What does your wife or husband think? And sometimes you get the answer, oh, I haven't talked to them about it yet. And it's not a great sign if you're that far down the lines of having a discussion with someone about the franchise yeah. because you, they need their family support. They have to have their family support. The, the Americans love the word side hustle, don't they? So I think a lot of consultants would maybe do be, be working full time and then have their side hustle, their consultancy, maybe building it up on a very part time basis or in the evenings or at weekends. Just to see if there's any traction there and see if they can make something of it. So that could be a way to go of of actually doing it in your in your spare time.
1: Sure. And I think you you raise a good point there, actually, is you can kind of test the model, can't you? You know, if you've got income coming through, you've probably got some spare time as well, you know. Most most roles are nine to five or or something similar. But even if it isn't, you've got weekends where you can go out there and speak to friends and family within your network and Mm -hmm. say to them, you know, what do you think of this idea? Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a, a really important point as well. Yeah. So you mentioned franchising. Why is that an option, and 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 how do you think that can benefit somebody who's maybe looking for a consultancy role?
0: Um, well, I think a lot of people know maybe franchising. They might see the worst side of franchising. Hear the stories in the press about franchises that were maybe pyramid schemes or that have failed and have left a, a lot of money owing to franchisees. But actually, franchising is a, is a massive option in the UK. Um, as, as well as companies like McDonald's and Burger King and Pizza Hut and Costa Coffee being franchises, there is also business format franchising. That doesn't make sense. Uh, there's also white collar franchising. So there are some major organisations that act on a global level. Um, and have positions suitable for business consultants. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, when
1: when I joined the, the, the franchising industry two years ago, I was amazed at the different types of companies out there because I thought it was literally just McDonald's and that, and that kind of business. Yeah. But uh, there are a lot of accountancies, consultancies uh, out there that are, are franchised. And um, the thing that now shocks me is that Franchising is not the first thing that people think of. you know. It, when redundancy hits, the, the, the first uh, thought tends to be, and this is just from what I've experienced over the years, it tends to be, well, how can I get another job? It's not always the best way, especially in such a competitive market. So uh, looking at something like franchising, you can actually find funding through the banks to help you to start that business. They'll even pay for the first year's worth of uh, living expenses as well. So it's actually gives you some security. Of course, there's gonna be a loan involved and you need to pay that back, but there's some security um, that it can offer you and start a future that goes in the direction you actually want to. Because I've
0: I've read that uh, franchise success rates versus business success rates are so much higher. People starting their own business are less likely to succeed than, say, a franchisee getting into a, a, a brand. Um, and that's it. It, You are, as a franchisee, you're buying into a brand, and therefore you've got to step up on the ladder already. I think we mentioned with Carl about having that step up. Um, You've already got a system in place. You've already got reputation. Um, So it's it's a good industry and a good option to look at um, if you're not fully confident about going out there and starting something yourself. Um, Probably a word of caution would be that, if you aren't one for following the rules and and sticking to a system, franchising wouldn't be for you. Go out there and do that yourself.
1: But my question would be, is business for you? Is self-employment for you if you can't follow a, a set of systems or rules? Because you, you're going to have to be harsh and be accountable to yourself anyway if yeah. you're starting your own business. So yeah, good point. Uh, I think, yeah, it's probably some hard decisions need to be made if you're in that situation where you've got to think about what your future is. But mm. um, uh, I guess with... On the, point of, on the point of franchising there's a reason why the banks are more likely to loan for a franchise business than they are for a business that somebody comes up with on themselves it's a proven model isn't it it's mm. something that you can follow a system that can work but yeah, um yeah
0: it's I'd, I'd, I'd say in, in um oh, sorry I'd say in some in some franchises it's you, yeah, you are part of a model and you are part of a brand, but then you can also bring your own authenticity into it. So, um, in particular, being consultancy, a consultant in franchising, um, I think there is a need for you to to be yourself, be a build build trust with potential customers, um, and that's where the results come. So it's not a burger flipping franchise where you do this and you follow this system and it's and everything works. You can bring bring a bit of your own personality to it as well.
1: Well, and your experience, you yeah, know, yeah. and knowledge, because ultimately con- consultancy is based on what you know more than the, the, the client that you're helping. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's quite an interesting concept where you can leverage your background to create success for yourself. But uh, mm. you, you mentioned the burger flipping there. I've, I've got to kind of bring up the one 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 piece of this that I thought was really interesting. Um, most of the burgers in McDonald's have actually been created or developed by franchisees themselves. Mm. It's not McDonald's, the franchisor creating them. And it's the same in, um, in the consultancy world. A lot of the new ideas and processes have come from the franchise network. Mm. But, um,
0: and that's the power of the network and, and the relationship between franchisees, isn't it? And, yeah. that's, and you are, there's the expression, be in business for yourself, but not by yourself. And that's what franchisees like. They fit. They like to feel part of a, a network. Um, the alternatives for consultants are uh, go out and find a, a, a similar group of people to you. So I know there are business groups out there or collectives of people that work together um, and help each other out um, and maybe don't have a, a big franchise fee in, in, in involved in that. Yeah, no,
1: no it's a good point because, I mean, it, leveraging your network step one <laughs> is is the way to do is the, the main thing you need to do whether it's changing jobs or changing careers or or moving into self-employment or franchising it's think about who your network is leverage those combined with your knowledge and expertise and you, you'll probably get somewhere
2: hi everyone and welcome to Anne's top tips on how to start your own consulting business My name is Arndt Halbach, and today I'll be talking about how to transition from employment into a self-employed consultancy. And here's my top three tips for you. Number one, make sure you have an offer that the market really wants. And what I mean by that is when you start thinking about it and you start building your business plan for your own consultancy business, you'll be speaking to friends and family, but also to potential clients, and prospects, people that you know from your past career. And what you will find is that they want to be very friendly with you. And they'll give you very positive feedback or say, Yeah, that's a wonderful idea. I think that it's really, yeah, you should be doing this, you know, so theoretically speaking, you think that you've done your market research, and maybe in your mind, you already think you've got three or four clients lined up, who all said that this is a fantastic service. And yeah, why wouldn't they use it, right? My advice to you is Actually, you know, those that could be your first one or two or three clients, actually get one of them to really commit to using your service. In other words, say, okay, well, I'm going to be starting this in a month's time. You know, can we get this signed? and Can I be starting with you in, you know, months and X? you know, so make it as concrete as possible, because that way, you know, if you've got the first person really committing to your service, then you know you are onto something. Of course, alternatively, you can also join a consultancy network where you know they have a proven track record. They've you know, kind of carved out a, prod, a product offering that is already accept, accepted by the market. Right? That's the other alternative. But there is a, is a real uh, risk there that you are following or pursuing a, a particular su- a service that the market maybe doesn't need or doesn't want necessarily. Right? And number two, and that's very closely linked, you need to go as niche as you possibly can. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is I've seen this hundreds of times. It's counterintuitive. When you start your own business, especially in consultancy, you think, oh, you know, I could actually, with all of my experience and, and the things that I've learned and my theoretical background, I could do, I could solve lots of different problems for my clients and, and for their organizations. So then you think, well, why wouldn't I take on that gig or that particular, you know, I don't have to restrict myself yes you absolutely do have to restrict yourself that is my top tip to you you need to either be very specific to a target group with your offering that could be a wider offering but to a very very niche kind of organizational structure or you need to have a very niche offering to a wider market you know very specific process piece uh, in in an organizational structure for example so you need to actually go niche you can go wider afterwards but you know you need to build yourself a reputation actually sign those first couple of clients with that very very recognizable offer um so that's my number two and number three once you've got the first two sorted my advice to you is you know if you want to transition from employment into consultancy don't do it as a so-called side hustle i don't think that concept has really proven to be very effective i know it's a lot talked about a lot at the moment especially on youtube you know and you hear people saying yeah do it as a side hustle consultancy is perfect for that no it's not you know if you are serious about offering real value in your consultancy business you should go all in on it and i think you just need to make sure that you've got the financing in place to take you through that first year which is going to be tough financially uh, for sure and and but really focus on it because especially in that first year you're going to be you know focused a lot on the commercial activity you need to sign your first couple of clients you need to sign your first projects you need to build a reputation so there's a lot that you need to do in actual business hours rather than you know do the you know number crunching or report writing on a weekend which can be done on a weekend that's right but if you want to get this off the ground and really build momentum and build something serious for yourself my advice is you know make sure that you've got the, the, the first client make sure that you go niche with your positioning but then please go all in
0: So thank you very much, Carl Reader. Um, good to meet you. Um, we're in an elevator together going up to the 15th floor of the power block. What, what do you say to me in those 15 seconds about what you do?
3: Well, you know what? I probably bore you to tears. So um, summing it up in 15 seconds is really difficult uh, because i wear a few different hats. But I would probably just say that I'm the author of Boss It, a new business book that helps you control your time, your income and your life.
0: Excellent. And just, just so you see there's the book
3: fantastic <laughs> what a, that's what i'd like to see what a great I, advert <laughs> this, i've got one on my desk too
0: <laughs> <laughs> right that's it we're done we can go now <laughs> um no so sharon at um, workbuzz sent me sent me a copy um fantastic. so un- unfortunately i didn't buy it Carl, but um i was gonna buy it and then i got an email from sharon saying oh would you like a free copy of Carl's book and i was like oh yes please that'd be great so um I'm, I'm reading through it at the moment. So yeah, it's a good read. Excellent. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got into business and where it all started.
3: Yeah, of course. Well, it actually it all started by accident, I would say. So if I go back, I'm not going to go back as far as the midwife holding me up on my feet. But I am going to go back to the age of 15, where I left school and I was just fed up with the academic system and... Didn't really see the point of turning up, to be honest, and decided to go into a YTS in hairdressing. Lasted all of about six weeks. Um, you could say I wasn't cut out for it. You can make all kinds of jokes. But anyway, went, went back to school, did my GCSEs, but had to get a job. And I had no idea what path I was going to take in life, to be honest. So, so you've got these options for whilst at school are open to you. And I was fortunate enough to go to a grammar school. So um, I guess the fortunate side of that is certainly when you're in that academic system, you've got a whole lot more options open to you than you might have at, let's say, a comprehensive. But having left very early, having really not done too well in my GCSEs, because I'd missed probably a third of my final year, um, I didn't have very many options. So I had to um, pick up the job paper and apply to every job that I found. And ended up falling into accountancy, but not even knowing what an accountant was, what they did, who they served, and so on. In fact, I remember quite clearly going to the library beforehand, um, dusting off a careers book and reading about what an accountant does. So anyway, went into accountancy, and that was, I guess, the beginning of my career in business. And whilst it was an unconventional route in, I guess the route I took within accountancy was even more unconventional. Because I found out pretty soon that I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like adding up numbers. So, what I found was I really enjoyed speaking to business owners and trying to ask them um, questions about their business, which are probably the simple questions, the ones that most professionals are too embarrassed to ask. Like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? How does this work? And I found that probably within a couple of years, I'd met a thousand of business owners. And I'd asked a thousand of questions that most advisors would never ask because they would never put themselves in that position of vulnerability to show that they didn't know something. So I moved from doing accounts to training business owners to um, then starting to build a portfolio, built a portfolio, then took on a team to build a portfolio, started doing marketing, led to doing a management buyout of DNT. Um, so then we then scaled that up to biggest franchise accounting firm in the country. Um, from there, I wrote three books of a Startup Coach, for Franchising Handbook, and Finally Boss It. And um, I spend most of my time now advising um, small businesses and really giving them the advice that I wasn't given as a child. So as a child, I was given advice that business is complicated. I did GCSE business studies, and it was about share valuations and big glass buildings. It wasn't about the reality of business so in my columns in the press and so on what i try to do is to demystify business and actually help people understand that business doesn't need to be complicated it's hard work but it's not complicated
0: definitely i'm, I'm a big believer in uh, in kiss keep it simple stupid it's um going back to basics is so important
3: it really is and the problem that we have in the business world is that so many people are motivated to find a problem and expand that problem to then sell the solution. Mm. And actually, business is really simple. It's about buying something for a five and selling it for a tenner. But along the way, we lose sight of that.
0: And so, um, any more books in the pipeline, or are you you done at your three
3: now? Hey, quite possibly. So, do you know, it's really interesting. you're, you're You're the first person to hear this, but over lockdown, I've been... I've been thinking about it, and I think we've all explored our own, I guess, inner hobbies and what we want to achieve and so on. And I've, I I, actually, for a passing moment, and I don't know if it will come to fruition, but I thought about writing a fiction book. Now, that's going to be really tough, because I've never read one, or certainly not since school anyway. Um, I think To Kill a Mockingbird was the last one I read, and it was when I was 14 or 15. So... It's yeah, I don't know where that idea came from. Uh, but yeah, certainly the bugs within me. And I think that there will be at least one more book. But I would like to make it a little bit different from the book so far.
0: So Carl, what's um, with, with COVID obviously changing the world this year? What's your view on COVID and franchising? Because franchising is a is a step up the ladder effectively. Do you see the franchising industry as being in a good place or might struggle a little bit? What's, what's your view?
3: Okay, so COVID has been the most, um, I guess, dramatic, catastrophic, um, terrible, whatever adjective you want to use, it's been the biggest thing that's gone on in, certainly in my lifetime, and probably for most viewers' lifetimes. It's, um, It's probably the closest comparison in not even recent history would be a world war. It's affected the whole world, and we've all been in that storm. And... It would be wrong of me to say that franchising has pulled through it beautifully. However, I think that certainly in the past, what I've seen is that franchising tends to pull out of most downturns beautifully. So there is opportunity for franchising going forwards. I think that if we looked at the franchising sector for 2020, I think if we were to look at the number of franchisors, the number of franchisees, who was trading at the beginning and who's trading at the end. would have probably gone down there was undoubtedly business closures as with every single sector the difference and why franchising tends to pick up after a downturn and where i think the opportunity and the positive outlook for franchising is is that when people lose their jobs they tend to gravitate towards franchising because it is a relatively safe bet we know that there's a significantly higher percentage of franchisees who are still trading after three years when compared to um, generic small businesses. You have a failure rate for small businesses after three years is more like 50%. With good strong business format franchisees, it's significantly higher than that. So the success rate is greater, and there's also the shortcut. You're able as a franchisee to buy into an existing brand, an existing system, and an existing culture, an existing way of doing things. So you've got all that stuff templated. And if you're new out of a career, it's fairly reasonable to consider that as an option. So, I'm actually cautiously optimistic about 2021 for franchising.
0: Mm. Yeah, from what I've heard of speaking with other franchisors, it's leads are up. That we feel the opportunity is there for us to grow our networks. Um, so, yeah, we're 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 looking forward to the future. Although there are Def- obviously challenges around at the moment. So,
3: definitely. So there's challenges at the moment. I mean, one of the services that we offer at DNT is franchise funding and. One of the issues with franchise funding right now is that the bank's efforts are focused solely and squarely on bounce-back loans and C-bills. So the EFG, which used to be a great route for franchising funding, isn't there, and the banks will likely be reluctant to lend until there's more evidence of things picking up. So that's going to cause a bit of a delay. And there'll be other challenges like that coming in as well. There's, I guess, another side to it is that redundancy packages might not be there in the same way that they have been before. So again, that might be a challenge, but franchising, I I strongly believe will find its way through it. And yeah, as you say, leads are up. People are wanting to invest in franchises. They're wanting that support and um, not an easy way to start a business, but a facilitated way to start a business and franchising can be the perfect option for that.
0: For For anyone that's um in the consultancy world already um and maybe they're struggling to get clients or they're they're not getting the success that they they wish to be getting, what advice would you give them?
3: Sure, so I think that we are moving rapidly in fact, we have moved from the systemization automation world to actually realizing that we can't compete with the big boys. You know, if we, uh, if we try and automate something, and it's a really good idea, Google, Microsoft, and everyone else are going to do it far quicker, far better than us, they've got deeper pockets. So whereas in the, I guess, the business advisory space 20 years ago, we would all follow v, if we Revisited and try and automate what we're doing and systemize and so on and, and rely on mantras such as extraordinary systems plus ordinary people give extraordinary results. That's a load of rubbish. That, that day's gone. And we're now in the world of having to really focus on human-to-human interactions. So there's the old clichéd saying, um, it's been around for donkey's years, it's not B2B or B2C, it's H2H, human-to-human. And there's another side to it. When we look at automation, the things that can't be automated are specialist human skills and specialist interpersonal skills. And as a consultant, we need to look at where we can major in one or other or potentially both. because Let's say, for example, we can compare an antique furniture repairer versus Ikea. Ikea can bring more and more robots into what they're doing. They don't need team members on the shop floor. That can still be automated. But you can't automate the eye of a specialist furniture repairer who will know exactly what shade of paint to fill it in and how to repair that crack or whatever. So polar opposites. And it doesn't matter if a furniture repairer can communicate or not. They've got that specialist skill. Likewise, when it comes from um, interpersonal skills, if you are an order taker, you could probably be uh, automated. If you are a top ranking rainmaker, you probably can't be. So there's that fine balance. And I guess the perfect example is for dentist who could be, you know, certainly I'm scared of needles, believe it or not. So, it, for a dentist to work are on those teeth, fake,
0: fake tattoos on your hands, are they?
3: They're not. No, no. I, I don't know why I can do tattoos, but I can't do injections. Um, but specifically for a dentist, for a dentist to get me in that chair, he's not only got to be good at his job and get the certificates, he's got the specialist skills, but he needs to charm the pants off of me as well. So, there's two sides to it. And as a consultant, you need to look at like, where can you, where can you really put yourself out there in either specialist skills or interpersonal skills? Where can you um, focus on what Michael Porter used to call product differentiation, or how can you truly relate to your customers human to human age? And I think that there's another side to that as well. I would say personal branding is the currency of today for consultants and for anyone giving a human to human um, service rather than hiding behind a, a computer screen. I know we have to do that at the moment, but be out there, meet people, and create that relationship. Because instead of going to the cinema nowadays, we're watching Netflix. Instead of going to restaurants, we've got Uber Eats and Deliveroo and so on. And we are a societal race. We're a societal being and we want to deal with other people. And that's something that is a really easy way for consultants to set themselves apart is to be themselves.
0: Yeah. 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 It's so important to build that rapport, isn't it? And just to be a real human being. and not
3: be that staged like oh what should i say or what should i not say oh completely listen we we all deal with in our personal lives we all deal with chat box for example you know if you want to send something back to amazon or whatever you've got to go through the rigmarole and you know when you log on to that chat box you know that the three options it's going to give you you're not going to want any of them
0: S- speak speak to advisor speak to advisor that's what i say and,
3: <laughs> and the problem is if If you work to a script, now whether that script is a genuine script or it's a script of what you feel you need to do to tick certain boxes and be professional and um, be another anonymous consultant, you might as well be a chatbot. No one wants to deal with you, but if you can just be yourself and have some personality and be known for being yourself, then actually you make it so much easier to build that rapport.
0: Yeah, and you might you might put off some people if you've got a big personality or you could be a Marmite character and some people just don't want to deal with you. But oh, the, 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 um, what's the expression? Your, your, vi- your, your vibe attracts your tribe. So it's very much around working with people that are similar to you or get on with you and like you.
3: This is it. And I think that um, it's probably worth just mentioning, and it's going off, off, off piece a little bit, but some people actually use the Marmite approach deliberately and they deliberately try to alienate some people in the belief that it captures others. And I think that's, personally for me, that's the wrong way about it. I think you have to frame it positively. Work out where you're going, but just accept the fact that some might not like you. So rather than trying to antagonize people through personal branding, um, try and be the bit of Marmite people love. And yes, there'll be there'll be some that don't love it, but so be it. Mm. And what's what would you
0: say? How because obviously a lot of people would try to build their personal brand. It's probably a little bit like my son. He started a YouTube channel because he sees all these YouTubers and he he thinks he's going to be the next one. But it it takes a lot of time and work and dedication and and promotion. How would you how would you see yourself as a building your personal brand from? A nothing level to suddenly making it because is is it is there a sudden lift? Do you think?
3: Uh, so I can only talk about my own experience because I'm I'm not really an expert on this stuff. But I, I've got up to about 160,000 followers on social, and there was nothing sudden. um But it might have appeared like that to the outside world potentially. And I mean, I started doing social media stuff back in 2008. I think I started on Twitter, and it's just you know, one tweet after another, after another. I think that you have to remember the iceberg effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, consistency, consistency, consistency. You have to remember the iceberg effect, that there will come a point where it crops up above the sea level, but actually there's a hole underneath it. Um, It is tough though, because if you were to ask me to answer honestly, if I could replicate what I've done over the last 12 years on, um, I guess, personal branding, social media stuff and so on, if I could replicate that today, I couldn't answer that, honestly. I, I couldn't say yes, because there's other factors at play. The first one being, I mean, you mentioned your son's trying to do it. My son's trying to do it. Every, everyone and his dog's trying to do it. And there wasn't that competition back then. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the dynamic of what people are looking for from content creators has changed as well. So even if we look you know, just five, six years ago, the types of videos that would get traction, and I, I know I'm going very specific, very hyper-specific here, but the types of videos that get traction would be walking around and holding a mobile phone and doing a vlog. Nowadays, people think, what on earth are you doing? Can't you afford a ring light? Can't you afford a tripod? It's it's a very different way of doing things. And with the competition going up, the barriers to entry have gone up as well. So, so yeah, it's it's one of those things I think that, personal branding we we do also need to remember it's not just about social media it's not just about online presence it's about understanding who you are what you offer to your customers what you offer to the wider world and just being authentic to that throughout everything you do
1: so phil nice interview with carl there and uh, he raised a really good point about authenticity actually and i think that ties into a lot about what we were talking about before the interview. But um, I wanted to ask you, what were your kind of key takeaways from the conversation with Carl?
0: Yeah, thanks, Ed. I think, yeah, authenticity is so important, especially in the consultancy world. Um, at the end of the day, we don't want to be copycats of each other. We, we can each bring, we've each got our own personalities. We've each got our good things that, are, uh, we've each got things that are good about us and maybe some things that aren't good at us, but it's working to our strengths and ensuring that we're, we're being authentic the whole time. Um, apart from that, I love what he said about demystifying business. We overcomplicate things, everything in life we overcomplicate. So go back to basics, make it simple for you, think about what you're trying to achieve, um, and 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 just do the simple things well. Um, he also talked about leveraging your network, and again, that that's yeah. 100% vital. If you don't have the confidence in yourself and the confidence in yourself to approach the people that you know and talk to them about what you're doing, doors aren't going to open. At the end of the day, I think they, they say everyone's connected to each other within seven connections, is that right? Is that right? Something like um, that. They say everyone's connected to each other within seven connections, like on LinkedIn. So people do know people and by having conversations, you can open doors with other people. So going out there, talking to people about what you do, um, and seeing who they can introduce you to and make a referral into, um, and just having confidence in yourself.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, and that that works for all all of the three different options you've got to try and get into consultancy, is leverage that network. So that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, Hopefully you got something out of this conversation, and um, you've learned something about going from employment into consultancy. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and seen, Please click on the subscribe button on the main website page where you have access to exclusive content, podcasts, webinars, and a webinar on how to uh, set up your consultancy from scratch.
0: So... Thank you very much, Marcus, for your time.
3: Well, Phil, you've touched on something really important, because so I think you have to be incredibly creative to cut through the noise. Um, and creativity is um, something that comes with uh, thought. It's not through panic. Um, it's it, Often it will come through uh, synthesising lots of different ideas. Yeah, Avis, win number two, we try harder. What a fabulous um, approach. In your marketplace, who are you number two uh, to? Um, Why don't you go after their market share by demonstrating to people that
2: you know you're number?